We've been studying the book of Acts, so I want to invite you to turn there with me to the book of Acts, chapter 21. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Bible's in the back. I'm going to dismiss the kids in about two minutes. If you don't have a Bible, please uh, grab one. I don't have every verse up on the screen. Easy enough to follow along. Again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, chapter on top, 21, and we'll be uh, starting at verse 27. Um, that's where we're at. So that, I'm not going to have all the verses up. So kids, I'll, I'll dismiss the kids. Go ahead, guys. You can go to your class, prospective age groups. And the rest of us can turn to 21. I'll read our passages in a minute. I just want to jump I'll give you a head start into the passage. We're looking at chapter 21 at verse 27 where we left off last week. We will end in chapter 22, verse 29. A lot of ground to cover, but um, we've come to the place in the book, studying it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, to a very difficult place for the Apostle Paul. Up to chapter 21, right after his conversion in chapter 8, Paul has been on mission, uh, preaching the gospel, proclaiming the gospel, doing... um, uh, healing ministries, preaching, declaring Jesus, and planting churches all throughout Asia Minor into uh, Europe, down into Corinth, and uh, he's gone on three separate missionary journeys. Remember, they started uh, in Antioch, and he came, went, did a journey, came back to Antioch, and gave them report, and went back out, came back to Antioch, second one, and now the third one, he'll never make it back to Antioch, because he's on his way to Jerusalem. Last week, if you remember, he had left the province of, or the province, uh, the, the place of Macedonia, crossed over into the region of Asia Minor, went down to the port of Miletus, called the Ephesian elders together, prayed with them, cried with them, said goodbye to them, and then he went east to Kost, then to Rhodes, then to Patera. If you remember last week, he went on a larger ship, went down to Phoenicia. Uh, I'm going to spare you the map this week. You got them on the back of your Bible if you have a study Bible. Went to Phoenicia, which is about 400 miles. Uh, along the Adriatic into the Mediterranean, so it was a larger ship, and he landed in Tyre, if you remember that from last week as well. Tyre is about 400 miles again from, uh, from where he left, and it's about 100 miles north of Jerusalem. If you could picture Jerusalem, uh, Phoenicia in that region, and where he's at in Tyre is about 100 miles straight north from Jerusalem. Spent the day there talking with the church, meeting with the church. They persuade him, remember, not to go to Jerusalem. Um, and then he set sail instead of traveling by foot. He went south toward Jerusalem to uh, Ptolemas, then to Caesarea. Again, just like Paul, stopping in a new place, sought out Christians to, to fellowship with, to, to talk with, to pray with. I'm excited today. We have two families that have left uh, and moved on from King's Chapel here visiting with us. And lots of hugs out there. You know, uh, the, some, of the, some of the families have grown uh, since they've been away. So that, that's, what, that's what we see. Paul meeting with these Christians and immediately connecting with them. And, and, and there's wonderful fellowship. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem, though, and nothing's going to stop him. In fact, while he's at Caesarea, Agabus, a prophet, uh, grabs Paul's belt, ties his own hands and feet, and says in verse uh, 11 of chapter 21, He said, the Holy Spirit is saying this. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns the belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Paul is headed toward Jerusalem knowing very well that this is about to come true. The prophet has spoken. Paul tells him, stop weeping. 
stop crying for me. You're breaking my heart. Later on, he'll say, I, I'm ready not only to be in prison, but to die in Jerusalem. They had a heart for Paul. They loved Paul. They knew what Paul was, was headed toward. They knew that as Paul had wrapping up his third missionary journey, landing in Caesarea on his way to Jerusalem, what was there before him? And from a heart of love, they pleaded with him, don't go. And Paul's like, no, the Spirit told me to go. God has directed me to go. He said it in chapter 19, verse 21, chapter 20, verse 16, chapter 20, verse 22, when he's in Miletus with the Ephesian elders, he says, I've been constrained, I've been compelled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Not knowing exactly what's going to happen, except that the Holy Spirit has told me that in every city, imprisonment and infliction and afflictions await me. Paul's going. We know he's going to Jerusalem because he's collected some money. We know that from other parts of Scripture. That he's been collecting money in Asia Minor because of a famine that's been going on. Particularly hard in the area of Jerusalem. So he's, 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 he's asking people to give, you know, Gentiles and Jewish believers outside Jerusalem to help this Jerusalem church, this family where the, where the church began in the day of Pentecost. And... Paul is headed to Jerusalem. Nothing's going to stop him. And we said last week as we closed that it may be possible not only that Paul was on his way to Jerusalem to bring this, this famine relief fund, but also, uh, according to the text, in chapter 7, 21, verses 17 to 26, we see Paul going to Jerusalem and meeting with James, meeting with the elders, telling them all that God's been doing among the Gentiles, and, and, and dealing with... Uh, uh, False rumors that have been circulating. That's exactly where we ended last week. And, 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 and the question, if you look at the text, in chapter 21, 17, um, following the rest of, of, all the way down to verse 26, we found last week that the question that was brought to Paul's attention was that there were some who were saying that as Paul was declaring the gospel and preaching about Jesus to both Jews and Gentiles, he was also saying to the Jews, listen, forsake the Mosaic law, forsake the customs, uh, the, the, the festivals, the feast of the law of Moses. And that just simply isn't true. Paul certainly, certainly was saying that one does not need, whether Jew or Gentile, to obey the law of Moses in order to be justified, in order to be made right with God. We know that from all his preaching. So the question was, was not, do, do Gentiles need to keep the law of Moses to be a Christian, to be saved, or even do Jews need to keep the law of Moses to be saved? The answer to that is no, absolutely not. But, Paul, can we still be Jewish? Can we still hold on to our customs? Can we still hold on to, to the things in which we grew up with? Even though we're Christians now, can we still do those things that we're part of who we are? Paul says, yeah, okay. As long as it does not interfere, as long as it does not become the place where one has to do that in order to be saved. The Jerusalem Council, Acts 15. If you don't know that passage of Scripture, know Acts 15 well. Very important in the book of Acts. It's the place where they finally came to the conclusion that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, that a person can be made right with God. Very clear. Just hear some things from, from the culture that we, we rather the Gentiles not do among Jewish brethren. That, that, and, he, and he mentions that in the text. Verse 25 of chapter 21. But Gentiles, we sent them a letter. He's talking about Acts 15. 
Very, very important. Very, very important. So Paul says, you know what? Uh, James says to Paul, listen, if that's true, we all agree, faith alone through Christ alone, but it's okay for a Jew to keep his customs. I'll tell you what, Paul. There's four men that have a Nazarite vow. Why don't you go down and purify yourself? You're in a Gentile land. Take these four guys with you and, and pay for their haircuts to finish up the Nazarite vow. And you could show everybody and kind of declare to everyone that, you know what, keeping the customs if you're Jewish is not a bad thing. It won't justify you, but it's okay to remain Jewish in that sense. Paul says, okay, I, I, I will do that. As long as it doesn't obscure the truth of the gospel, reconciled by God alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. But if this will help bring unity in the church, I'll lay down my right not to do this, and I will go, and I will, for the advancement of the kingdom, for the unity of the church, I will go and participate in the ceremonial practices of being Jewish, since I am a Jew. That's where we pick up the story. It's very important, though, that we see that. Because what's going to happen is <laughs> things don't go very well for Paul. Okay? So that's where we're at. Turn in your Bibles again to chapter 21. First thing I want to see is, as Paul gets arrested in Jerusalem, is Paul's arrest. Three things, actually. Let me give you ahead of time. Paul's arrest, Paul's defense and then Paul's response. That's the three parts that we're going to look at, the three different parts of the narrative, okay? So here we are in Acts chapter 21, verse 26, and let me read some scripture for you. I go back to 26. I want you to see the connection. When Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them, when the seven days were almost completed, so he goes, he's, he's waiting, he goes the first day, now he's got to wait seven days. So after, after his concession, seven days later, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple as defiled his holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people all ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. Verse 31, as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune, tribune and the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Verse 33, then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He re inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he, the tribune, ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came into the steps, and when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. So here's the situation. Paul's like, all right, it's so the seventh day. We started the process. Okay, James, I'll do it. No problem. Seventh day, I'm returning to the temple to complete my, uh, you know, my purification. And some Jews from Asia stirring up the crowds. Possibly from e um, Ephesus. We're not told specifically exactly where from Asia, but look at t verse 29. It said part of the problem is that they said, Paul, you brought Trophimus from Ephesians into the temple. We, we saw him there. 
which is not true. Now remember, this is during the days of Pentecost. Huge festival, hundreds of thousands of Jews all over the known world are told to come to Jerusalem. Three feasts where the Jews, the men at least, were to come to Jerusalem. So they're from all over the world, the known world. So in Asia, we had some people from, who, who were in Ephesus when Paul was there. If you remember, he was preaching the gospel and the gospel had taken root in the hearts of so many that the culture began to change. That, that people were only becoming uh, Christians, but they were so devoted, they treasured Christ so much that they began to bring, remember, millions compared to today, but so much of their wealth, they were burning their books, their idolatry, their, their practices, and this whole uproar in the city happened. And the idol makers were always, they were just angry because Paul had preached the gospel, the gospel took root in the culture, and things began to change in that culture. So it's no surprise at the opposition coming from the Asian Jews. This, I, I, I just want to point this out again. Paul was just following what they were telling him to do. The things aren't going very well. Things don't always go well when, 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 when you say, all right, this is what I need to do. This is what I believe will bring unity. And sometimes there's opposition. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. But they bring two false accusations. Look at verse 28. You're teaching all men everywhere. That, that tells you something right there. We heard about you. Like you, you, you don't care about people, respecting of people. You just, you're willing to share the gospel with everyone. We heard about you, all men. Let that be said of us, right? All men, things against the people, the Jewish people, the law, and the temple. You know what's interesting about this charge? It's the same thing they said to Stephen back in chapter 6. It's the same thing they said to him. That they accused him of, of, of speaking against the law, against the temple, against the people. Their, their ethnicity, their, their theological foundation, and, and the temple, the place there of their devotion. Look at the second charge. Paul, you brought Greeks into the temple and you defiled it. Not true. I mean, it is true that Paul was at the temple. Paul was bringing the sacrifices. Paul showed some observance to the ceremonial laws of Judaism. But Paul's a Pharisee. He would never bring a Gentile into the inner court. There was a place that the Gentiles go. But he would never bring them, what they're saying, into the inner court where only Jews were allowed. There was a sign outside that area where, where Gentiles were not allowed. In fact, it was written in both Greek and Latin. This is what it said. It was a four-foot stone wall. It said, no foreigner, means non-Jew, may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and its enclosure, the inner part. Anyone who's caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. So it's like, it's not whether we're going to kill you or not. We're just telling you you're responsible because we told you so. That's what, that's what they're saying. So it's very serious, a very serious accusation, but very wrong. They're just saying, we saw you with, you know, Trophimus, he, he's a Gentile, so we're just assuming that he defiled the temple. Next thing, a mob breaks out, right? They grab Paul, they, 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 they slam the gate, they bring him out, bring him out of Jerusalem, out of, out of the temple area, and they slam the gate, and verse 31 says why? They're trying to kill him. But, by the good providence of God, God was not going to let that happen. Along the northwestern corner of the temple stood a complex they called it the tower of antonia 100 feet high overseeing the temple area just happened to be the place where the roman army was it, herod the great built it as a defense against the temple the, the army was stationed there and, and perhaps 
Perhaps, we don't know for sure. Perhaps they saw the mob, maybe heard the commotion, and it says that they called this, this Roman tribune. He's the guy in charge of the cohort, which is a thousand soldiers. He's the guy, the Roman tribune, very powerful guy. In fact, in verse, chapter 23, verse 26, we know his name. It's Claudius Lysias. That's his name. He's a high-ranking official. What the governor would do um, is he'd be in charge of that whole area, but he lived in Caesarea. He, that's where he's stationed. So he would leave these Roman tributes, uh, tribunes in certain locations in charge. Make sure, and let me tell you, Jerusalem was a place where things can get really out of hand, right? So he leaves them in charge and says, look, you keep the peace. It's up to you. And it's not like if you don't do a good job, we'll fire you. That's today. If you don't do a good job, we'll crucify you. You know, we'll kill you. So there was a lot at stake here. So he gets word, look, there's something going on in the temple. And he runs down with, with, I don't know how many soldiers. And I am sure that Paul was really happy to see him. Right? It says they were beating him. And then when Paul sees them and the Roman soldiers come in, they stop beating him. Verse 32. They arrest him. They bound him, just like the prophet had said early in the chapter. And from this point on in the book of, of, of Acts, Paul is either literally in chains, but he's always in prison. Or at least, we should say always a prisoner. From this moment on. So the ending, very last word in the book of Acts. Paul has now been shackled. Paul has now been snatched up. Paul will remain a, a prisoner until his, the book ends, actually. Now, they're all yelling, away with him, away with him. Lots of confusion. And I can tell you from experience that during a very serious uproar in, a, uproar in a very large crowd, when there's the center of something one going on, the best thing you can do is snatch that person out of there, ask questions later. Many of you know I've worked in the correction facilities. You know what? We'll, we'll ask questions later. Right now we have to protect the place, protect the person being hurt, protect everyone, and make sure everyone is safe. Let's go in there, let's get it done, and we figure out, and that's exactly what happens. They carry him away. And when they carry away, they're like, all right, now we've got to ask you some questions, but they were killing you down there. So we had to stop. Now, as we look at this situation, let, let's, let's point out two things. Number one, Paul, by the good providence of God, life was spared at the nick of time. They were going to kill him. No question. Number one. Number two, I think it's safe to say that he was probably a little angry and certainly very afraid. Now, I don't know about you, just think for a moment, all alone, getting beaten, crowds ready to kill you, don't tell me that you won't be just a little bit afraid. I mean, all he's trying to do, all he's trying to do is just go through the Jewish customs with his brothers, you know, just participate in the customs, and they're yelling, away with him, away with him. I wonder, as I read this text, I wonder how many times, or excuse me, I wonder how many of them that were yelling away with him were there just 30 years ago, less than 30 years ago, in that same place, at the same temple, right in Jerusalem, and there was one who claimed to be Messiah, bound by Pilate, brought before the Jews, John 19, and they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Jerusalem, at this point, has acted murderously against Jesus, against Peter, against Paul, right? against John, against Stephen. This is, this is the final rejection in, in, in Acts against the gospel in Jerusalem. Now, in light of all that's going on, 
Uh, and it's not a fairy tale. Like, we're not just reading just a, a nice story. I mean, put yourself in Paul's shoes. Do you really think that Paul was not afraid? Do you think, really think that he's this superhuman that, that is going through this motion without feeling anything? I don't think so. But in light of what's going on and the fear that must have, it, it is utterly astonishing that Paul is now seeking permission from, his, from, the, from the Roman soldiers, those who have bound him. He's seeking permission to speak to the crowd. Now, if it were me, I would have cursed him out and told him all to go to hell. I'm just being honest. That's what I would have said. But, but, but Paul, which we will see, he cares about them. He's talking about their eternal state, and he's sharing with them about Jesus. He wants to tell them about the gospel, the love of God, repentance and faith in Jesus. That, that Christ had come and died for him. It's amazing that he overcame the fear and whatever else he was feeling having compassion for them. He even calls them brothers, as we will see, and calmly and respectfully shares the gospel with them. It's remarkable. I mean, why would he stick out his neck so far when the danger is so high? Because Paul saw himself as no different than them. Paul saw himself as no different than them, but for the grace of God. He was given a rare opportunity and he took it despite the imminent danger he faced. Look how he identifies with his accuser, Paul's defense. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something? He said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who, who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the Essene, the Essene that's a, out in the wilderness? Assassins, there we go. Out in the wilderness, Paul replied, no, no, I'm a Jew in Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people, verse 40. And when he had given them permission, Paul, standing in the steps, motioned with his hands to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Absolutely masterful. Paul is about to do, not so much preach a sermon, per se, but give a very vivid personal testimony. He details his, his past conduct, his conversion, his encounter with Christ, and how Jesus turned this, this, this Christian hater, enemy, into a propagator of the gospel with a brand new calling and a brand new mission. Paul, look here, starts and speaks to the tribune in his own native town in Greek. He's actually surprised, like, wow, you're speaking to me Greek? You, aren't you that guy? He's like, no, that's not me. I, I'm a Jew, really. I'm from Tarsus, no ordinary city, very important city. At this point, they, they were taken back, and they're like, this ain't no hillbilly dude that you know, just doesn't know what he's talking about. He speaks well. He's speaking in my native language. He, 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 he knows how to communicate with me. And, 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 and just a thought here, as I, as I was thinking through this, I just put a little note here. Do we, do we have the honesty, do I, have the honesty, the common sense, the intellectual integrity that might give me or you an opportunity to speak with those who may not at first want us to say anything about Jesus? What I mean is, 
Do we carry ourselves in such a way that when we're asked, or when we ask someone, ask someone, can I speak to you about Jesus? The person's comfortable with us. The person will, will, will allow us and, and think, you know what? He's not going to just hurl judgment. He's not just going to beat me up. He's not going to just, um, you know, uh, uh, bully me or browbeat me into me. He loves me. If you want to share, go ahead. I, I mean, it's just a thought. I'm thinking this guy says, go ahead, Paul. Out of nowhere, he just, go ahead, you can speak. I'm like, really? So Paul motions his hands. We don't know what it is, but it was something. Whatever Paul did, he was a great orator, and he, the, the whole crowd became silent. If you notice, it says that um, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. If you have an ESV, NIV, uh, Aramaic, that's because the Greek is ambiguous. I think it is Aramaic. It, it means a Hebrew dialect, which is probably Aramaic. And, and the reason why most commentators put, not the ESV, but put Hebrew dialect is because the Aramaic in that time during Paul's day would have been the language that all the Jewish people spoke both those in Jerusalem and those outside Jerusalem. So Paul spoke Aramaic to them so that everyone, all the Jews, common language among all the Jewish people, would have known. And, and Paul speaks this Aramaic to them and, 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 and they become very, very quiet, it says. It was a smart choice. It was, it was, a, good, it was a good decision. And he tells them three things. First, the conduct. He tells them about his conduct. Look at that. Brothers, first he says in verse 1, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Now the word defense, apologia, is where we get our word apologetics. Defending the faith. But you know what's more interesting about that passage? That is the exact phrase, again, that Stephen used back in chapter 7. When the mob grabbed him and chained him and, and he was able to speak, the first thing he says is, Brothers and fathers, hear that defense that I make before you. Who was at that persecution? The Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus. And here, Stephen is given the opportunity, and now some 20-something years later, speak Paul, and what does he do? He begins by saying the same thing Stephen said. The one that they killed at Paul's feet. Okay? The Apostle Paul was a terrorist and a murderer. And now, look at verse 2. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language of Aramaic, they become even quieter. And he said, I'm a Jew. I'm born in Tarsus in Cilicia, Cilicia, who brought up in the city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God. As all of you are this day, I persecuted the way, that's Christians, to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness you've heard of me from then i received letters from the other brothers and i journeyed toward damascus to take those who also who were there and bring them in bonds to jerusalem to be punished paul says look i have deep roots in the jewish faith and the culture and his respect for and past loyalty to them listen i i've been where you're at Paul's saying, I'm one of your brothers and fathers. In fact, I was brought up right here in Jerusalem, just like you. He talks about being trained. He talked about Gamaliel, who was a famous rabbi. High credentials. Very impressive. I think, they would have been, I think some of them were probably shocked, especially some of the newer people. I mean, here's this guy in the inner court of, of, of the Jewish 
religion, the Jewish culture the, in the temple raised up, I mean, the, the, the people who protect the faith. Paul's like, yeah, I, I was one of you. And then he says, we notice this, that I was just as radically violent for the faith as you are right now. <laughs> Instead of accusing them, he joins them for the moment, at least by word. You know what? I, I, I was the same way as you. I was just as violent. You guys just beat the dogs not out of me, right? And I, you know what? I was doing the same thing. And he identifies, talking about taking something negative and making a positive twist, right? He said, I persecuted away. In fact, I did it to serve God too, just like you. Right? I know how you feel. I know what you're thinking. I was just like you. Even the priest and the council know that. And, and I dragged people off. He's probably thinking about Stephen and maybe other people. All, all the letters he got, all the ways in which he went to Damascus and he was dragging people off in chains. Notice the irony. Look how ironic this is. Paul saying this while himself in bonds and chains. It's inescapable. I, I, chained up. I, I, just, I, I did the same thing. I was on the other side, just like you. He was a zealot for God, the Bible says, but Romans 2 says, not, we're not with real, real uh, knowledge, but he would meet Jesus. This prosecutor turned into a preacher. I think we could draw from this, and, I, and what I would like to do is just, just, re, just remind us and, and, and how important it is to identify with the people you're sharing the gospel with. How to identify with the people you share the gospel with. I speak for myself as well. If you can't identify, that's cool. Sometimes, as Christians, forgiven Christians, we forget that we're no different. I can't really identify with that. Really, you can't? Hell, damnation, separation, wrath, you can't identify with that? Then you're not a Christian. Because that was what you were before Jesus saved you by grace. So Paul identifies with them. as very, very important, right? We all need intervention. We're, we're desperately wicked, zeal for the wrong things, running, chasing things that will never satisfy, and now God needs to intervene. That's Paul's conduct. Look at Paul's conversion, verse 6. I was on my way. I drew near to Damascus, and just about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. I fell to the ground. I heard a voice. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Right? He's, re, he's retelling the story that first happened back in chapter 8. Now those with me saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice and the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do? And the Lord said to me, rise, get up and go to Damascus. There you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me, and I came to Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews, lived there. He came to me, standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. Verse 15, and you will be witnesses for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. So this angry mob, eyes wide open, were really blind. Eyes wide open, really blind by their zeal for their religion. God had to blind Paul so that he could see. So that he could see. And quite honestly, uh, 
we, we see this, this religious fanatical zeal all around the world, don't we? Innocent people being slaughtered, innocent people being killed for the zeal of religion, for the zeal of their God. Tim Keller writes about the zeal of Christians, people who would say these people are fanatically serving their God. He says, think of people you consider of, that you consider of, uh, of as fanatical. They are overbearing, self-righteous, opinionated, insensitive, and harsh. Why? It's not because they are too Christian, but because they're not Christian enough. They are fanatically zealous and courageous, but they are not fanatically humble, sensitive, loving, empathetic, forgiving, or understanding as Christ was. Because they think of Christianity as a self-improvement moral framework, they emulate the Jesus of the whips in the temple, but not the Jesus who said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. What strikes us, he writes, what strikes us as overly fanatical is actually a failure to be fully committed to Christ and his gospel, end quote. The point is that when, when you are self-righteous, opinionated, abusive, and extremely harsh, all in the name of God, it's, that, it's not that you have not gone, it's not that you've gone too far, it's that you have not gone far enough. Because a true zeal, a true fanaticism, we could say that, a true fanaticism is fanatically, is, is, is fanatically I think that's the right word, right? Humble, loving, forgiving, You're a fanatic and you're so generous, caring, willing to lay down your life for others. That's fanatics. That's fanatics. Paul was blinded by his so-called zeal, think he was doing God's work, but when Jesus appeared, everything changed. He suddenly understood that he was persecuting the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and the Son of God. And from a purely human standpoint, he had to be even shocked that he's a Christian now, right? He had to be shocked that he was a Christian, that he became a Christ follower. How? It says it right here. Paul saw the Lord of glory. Paul went from persecutor to proclaimer because Jesus, the risen king, appeared to him. In his testimony, Paul affirmed that Jesus Nazareth came to me. I heard his voice. I saw the light, and he spoke directly to me. And the angry mob was... I'm sure well aware that the Jewish people believe that his body was stolen, that his disciples stolen, that, that they hid him somewhere. He didn't really rise from the dead. And, and Paul's saying, no, I, I know what you all think, but Jesus rose, I heard from him, I saw him. He knocked me off my horse. And, and, and I've said this before, I just want to quickly say, the last person in the universe in that day to believe that God became a man rose from the dead and should be worshipped was the Pharisee, Bible-thumping scholar of the Old Testament, Paul. Okay, I'll tell you that right now. He, like those he was speaking to, were taught from this big. The Ten Commandments worship no other God. They were taught from this big. That God is so transcendent above the rest of us and separate from man to worship a God who became flesh and blood was not only preposterous, but blasphemous. And what do we see, Paul? Worshiping the living God. His name is Jesus. So what could possibly happen? He came face to face with him. It's right here. The risen Lord. He encountered Christ. Look at, look at Paul's wisdom in verse 12. 
He identified himself with Ananias, another devout Jew. Listen, not just me. This is about you. Everybody speaks good about him. He called me brother, verse 14. The God of our fathers. There's a connection. In other words, Ananias is saying, listen, the God of Abraham, yep, he, he, he appointed for you to see and to hear the risen Christ, the righteous one, which is the Messiah. Verse 15, he commissioned him to take the message into the world. Now, jump down, if you can, with me to verse 16. I just want to say something about that. He says, and now, Ananias is talking to Paul, and now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Okay, I just want to point out two things. Some people take that verse and say, okay, so he is to rise, he is to be baptized, which is, which is water baptism, and that will wash away your sins. That's not what it says. Okay, that's not what it says. He's not, it's not, water baptism doesn't cleanse us from sin. Okay, that's not what he's saying. Let me point it out to you. Acts chapter 9, verse 17, we read about Paul's conversion. Paul was filled with the Spirit. He was a child of God before he was baptized. So we know that he, he made a conversion, had a conversion experience before his baptism. The Greek word here, calling on, is a, a participle, which is an aorist, having called on, already called on. Therefore, it was the calling on his name, not the baptism, that resulted in his cleansing. So Paul, getting up and being washed and being baptized in water, was after he was called, after his salvation, that resulted, that calling resulted in his cleansing. So Paul was cleansed by the, by the blood of Jesus, by faith in Jesus, through conversion, becoming a Christ follower, and then he was water baptized. Okay, number two. In this verse, it, it, it's what they call causative, which means uh, have yourself baptized. So Ananias is saying, Paul, get up, arise, and have yourself baptized. Okay, have yourself baptized. In other words, you can't do it yourself. Have yourself baptized. And at this, in this case, it's Ananias. We'll baptize you. And you're thinking, so what? Does that really matter? Actually, it does. Actually, it's very, very important. You see, in Israel's history, there are a lot of immersions. There was a lot of washings, ceremonial washings, a lot of infusions and things of that nature. For a long time, for many centuries, all throughout Israel. Right? Jews used to wash their hands, they would wash their feet, they, they would wash their clothes, or they got to change their clothing before they go into the temple. It was symbolic of saying, I'm sinful, I'm wicked, God is holy, I'm not, and I need to wash, as a symbolically saying, I can't enter into the presence of a holy God being sinful. So they would cleanse themselves. You washed your hands. If you were a Gentile, you didn't just wash your hands, you had to go in the water. Because you're, you're really a dog, you're really, you're really dirty. You're a Gentile. We'll wash your hands. You get in the whole tub and, and completely from head to toe immerse yourself in water showing how much you need to be cleaned. We need a little cleaning. You need a lot of cleaning. Okay? But until now, well, until John the Baptist, really a forerunner of Jesus, every nation, even the nation of Israel, they were told every single person, Jew and Gentile, there's no such thing as self-cleansing anymore. Jesus is saying to all men everywhere, you cannot cleanse yourself. Your cleaning, your cleansing will come from the hand of someone else. And that's me. So all of you, both Gentile and Jew, the Gentiles outside the covenant, those inside the covenant, you will and need to be washed completely by the blood of Christ, the work of Jesus. I will ba- you will be baptized. You will not do it yourself. You can't save yourself. It has to be done. That's a perfect, it's perfectly clear. It has to be done by someone else. In order to receive the fitness for the kingdom, there has to be a cleansing that will come from not you, 
but from Jesus. So I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you what? With the Holy Spirit. We see his conversion. And look at the calling. Verse 17, when I arrived to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And I saw, I saw him saying to me, make haste, that's Jesus, and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. Do I really need to leave? And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself, standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him, they'll certainly hear what I have to say. No, verse 21, go, go, don't stay. I will send you far away unto the Gentiles. So Paul continued his apologia, his, his apologetics, his defense, by saying, I saw this temple, Jesus came to me, and, 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 and right after, about three years after my conversion, and he said, go. I've seen the risen Christ, just like Isaiah. Isaiah sees the risen Lord and then gives this, God says, go, I want you to go. Who shall go? Send me, remember? But Isaiah says, Isaiah was told to stay where he was in that community. Paul has said, you know what? I want you to go. Still, both of them were given a calling. Both of them were commissioned. I've said this so many times. I hope it pounds into your head. God never calls us in, cleanses us and changes us without sending us out. If you think, oh, I'm saved, this is great, I'm just going to go home and turn on my television and do nothing for the kingdom, you don't understand salvation. You don't understand the gospel. God calls us in, God sends us out. He did it to Moses, he did it to Isaiah, he did it to Peter, he does it to Paul. Go. Go to the Gentiles, he says. Don't stay here, but go. Now they knew about his reputation, and now Paul's saying, this something's changed, man. I have a different calling. I have a different mission. And the Jewish people are not happy. Verse 22, they were listening to him. Then they raised their voice. <laughs> Why? Because look what he says. He says, I, I, God told me to go to the Gentiles. That was not good. Paul had a winsome audience up to that point. Everything's going great. And then this last sentence. At that word, they raised their voice away with him. For he should not be allowed to live. Paul had been up to that point speaking to them and then being faithful to the end, no matter what the cost. He showed the truth with them. So on the one hand, what's amazing is Paul's boldness, his, his shrewdness, his, his apparent looking at, at the, in the face of fear and be able to press on with the gospel. On the other hand, we see that, that, that he cares, that he's respectful that he doesn't give unnecessary offense toward others. He's identifying, he's relating, he's understanding worldview. Dr. Tim Keller again writes, the combination of courage and deep sensitivity is extremely rare. We either refuse to say anything or we speak offensively. But that's not Paul, not his defense. Look at the last thing, Paul's response. And they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. That's another word to say, as my mother used to say. All right? <laughs> the tribune ordered him. Carol's laughing. Yeah, I know. All right. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out what they're shouting about. But when they stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion, is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Verse 26. When a centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do, man? This, this man is a Roman citizen. 
So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Paul said, yes. The tribune answered, really? I brought this citizen for a large sum of money. And Paul said, I was citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him and immediately, just, just let's stop. And the tribune also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen, that he was bound. So see this, see what's going on, kicking, and, and it's, they're going wild, they're throwing their clothes, and, and they're like, you know what, I got an idea, let's flog him and interrogate him. Like, let, let's flog him, let's interrogate him by flogging. That, that usually will work, right? You're like, I'll say whatever you want to say, right? Just so you know, the flagulum, which they flog people, were strips of, of leather. In it were bones, maybe even lead balls. And they would, they, would, they would beat the prisoner, did it to Jesus, and it would rip their skin open, their back, lacerated so bad that organs used to come out. And people would not even live. We're not talking, we're talking serious beating. Blood loss and death would happen on many, many occasions. But what Paul is pointing to is that no Roman citizen was allowed to be flogged by law without a court hearing, without a a, a full investigation and his due process. So he says, yeah, I'm a Roman citizen. I don't know how Paul proved it. Nobody really knows. But most people who said I'm a Roman citizen, if it were not true, you're going to be dead. Anyway, this is not even just a a beating. This is a, a, a death. So they took him at his word, which he, which he was a, a Roman citizen. He's like, listen, I, I, I paid for mine. Either I bribed somebody or I paid a large sum of money. But you, you're a Roman citizen? He had to be like, wait, let, let me see if I get this right, Paul. Uh, you're not an Egyptian revolutionary. You're a Jew. You're from Tarsus. You spoke polished Greek, so you have an education. You speak Aramaic, so everyone understood you. You're a Roman citizen. You're not even a Johnny-come-lately Roman citizen, like buying yours. Your father was a Roman citizen. You became one by birth. Really? Like, who are you? I read somewhere that one out of every 10 people had a citizenship, out of 50 million people. It's very rare. It was very, very, very prestigious. So Paul's beating just completely stops. And you have to say, all right, government intervention. I know that may bother some of you. The government intervened for the sake of the gospel. Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. That's today too. I made that, that may stretch you, but that's today too. Here we see God using the institution of Roman law as the method employed for the protection of his servant. God has established laws. God has established the fabric and the structure of society. No matter what we may think, all governments, all governments, let me say it again, all governments are subjected to God who is sovereign over all of them and will use all things for the purpose of his holy and good pleasure. I say that with total confidence, no matter how chaotic our world may seem. One of the questions at this point is, well, why did Paul say I'm a Roman citizen now? He didn't do it back in Philippi. We really don't know. Paul thought, you know what, this is really getting ugly maybe, and just, I, I better speak up. But one thing we know about Paul, it wasn't about his own rights. It wasn't about his own self-interest. It wasn't about his comfort. That wasn't the highest priority. It was the glory of God. It was the proclamation of the gospel. Paul, in many places, sets aside his agenda for the sake of the gospel, like Acts 21. 
1 Corinthians 9, I become all things to all people that I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Does that mean we should never assert our rights? That's not what I'm saying. Paul's doing it right here. He's asserting his rights. But I think the principle is if and when we need to demand our rights and we need to demand justice, we should do it for the honor and the glory of God, the well-being of our neighbors and our brothers and sisters. It's not just this raw self-assertion, right? And we, we don't mean we sit idly by when people sin against us. That's not healthy either. In fact, the Bible says that when we see someone sin, we are to intervene. We are to speak up. But it's really about motives. We should never do it out of revenge or a desire to pay back or to get even or just to simply assert our rights over people. I think that if we're honest, many times we should probably just keep our mouths shut. When we know it's better for the proclamation of the gospel, the good of others, and the good of our brothers and sisters. You be the judge. So let me end with going back, and I want you to follow me in the next two minutes, okay? The question that I had proposed earlier in the sermon. How did Paul, how did Paul get such courage in the face of opposition? How did Paul get such courage in the face of opposition? Many times we think we're in danger, we're, we're opposed, and there's, there's uh, arduous situations, there, there's danger ahead of us. We need to look within and, and, and pull out this courage out of our hearts and to stir up the, this courage that's lying dormant in us. Is that what Paul did? I don't think so. No, no, he didn't. In fact, he doesn't look to himself. In fact, he not only does not look for courage within his own heart, he doesn't d- uh, dismiss his fears either. Part of an experience. Fear is part of who we are as a human. It, it makes us aware of things. It keeps us out of trouble. It makes us be less, or, or I should say, overconfident. Listen, true courage does not dismiss fear, but it can thwart, be thwarted, be, be changed, be in different direction by the presence of hope and joy. Now watch this. Paul received courage not by looking to himself, digging deep with his own heart, but received courage by looking to the God of all courage. When God took on flesh and blood and became a man, he faced opposition, he faced extreme conflict, with courage, in such a way that when we face hardship, opposition, we can do it with hope and joy as well. Think with me a minute. On the night on which Jesus was betrayed, while in the garden, Jesus faces fear, extreme conflict, and opposition and death. Does he dismiss it? No. Actually, when Jesus faced death in the garden while praying on his knees, sweat of, of drops of blood flowed from his brow from the stress that was about to take place. Mark chapter 14, he went to the place of Gethsemane and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going further, he fell to the ground and he prayed. If it were possible, the hour might pass for me. Abba, Abba, but Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup. Yet not my will, but thine be done. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. What is so interesting is that when Jesus faced death, he did so with more fear and more vulnerability than many people after him. What I mean is there have been Christians who have been crucified and beaten and tortured who were singing, 
who were, who were, who were approaching death with, with more poise, less fear, and, and able to endure such persecution with joy. Here's the question, why? Why, did they, why does it appear that they have been murdered with more poise and less fear? Because what Jesus was experiencing on that day, in the garden and that next day, no one else has ever faced before. Jesus spoke of the hour. Jesus spoke of the cup. Take it, Father. Not a cup, but the cup. The cup. What is the cup? The cup in all of Scripture is the cup is a symbol, a metaphor for the wrath of God against human sin, against human evil. It is a metaphor of divine justice coming down on injustice. Jesus began in the garden to experience the spiritual darkness, the the spiritual cosmic uh, disintegration that is literally hell. All the symbols, all the metaphors, all the raging, unquenchable fires that the symbols in Scripture does not compare to the reality of it. And what Jesus was facing there in the garden, what Jesus was facing there in the garden was not simply death. What Jesus was facing in the garden was taking our sin and the Father's wrath upon himself for us. By far the ugliest thing in hell, let me tell you, the ugliest thing in hell is the separation from God who is light and love and peace and grace and mercy. In the garden, Jesus begins to stagger and be crushed as a foretaste of what would happen the next day. That while on the cross, when Jesus took our sin and took our deserved wrath on himself, in a moment, crying out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was hell. The lack of the presence of God, his life and his love, as he hung on the cross, and the Father turned his back on Jesus. He's the only one in all of history who took our sin, who bore the Father's wrath. That's what Jesus was feasting. The physical torment and torture was severe and excruciating, no doubt, but it doesn't compare to the horror, to the horror of justice being served on injustice, your injustice, my injustice, my sin, your sin, when it was laid on the back of Jesus Christ. The physical torment doesn't compare to that. Why would Jesus do that? Romans 12. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Despising the shame, seated at the right hand of the throne of God, Jesus did not dismiss fear, but embraced it. Not even looking to himself, but to the ultimate joy of pleasing his Father, bringing him glory, and saving you from sin, death, and hell. When we are faced with trials, hardships, and even persecution, We look away from ourselves to our great God and Savior who in all courage faced wrath for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross so that when we face fear or even death, we could do it with hope, joy, and assurance of his great love for us. Do you know that? That's why Jesus did it. For the glory of his Father, for the pleasing of his Father, and that you can be his child. That's the joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word this morning. Father, we like Paul, as we admit, we are, we are afraid at times. 
We don't like persecution. We don't like opposition. And Lord, we don't like being in that type of situation. Father, we pray that our hearts would be right, that it would not be about just self-raw assertion, but Lord, for your glory, for the good of others, for the proclamation of the gospel. And Father, in times like that, we pray that your spirit would draw us closer to Jesus, that we would see his love and his sacrifice and all that he accomplished knowing the joy that was laid before him would not only bring pleasing to you, but would make a way, the only way, for our salvation. So Father, we ask that as we sing this song, as we praise you and worship you now in in song, that our response would bring you glory, that it would be appropriate, that we would trust you, that we would lay down our our, our lives for you because you lay down your life for us. Please help us to respond in a way that brings you glory and thus joy.